Welcome to the Architecture of Contemplation podcast, where every week I sit down with a fellow human and ask which spaces or places do they frequent that provide space for respite and contemplation. Time appears to be sequential, right? Running solely in one direction in an ever-expanding universe. Too often it feels that voluntary pausing is simply not an option. Part of my mission, Hardeep, your host, is to ask the question, in modern times, what are the spaces, the principles of design, the underlying ethic of these restorative moments, and how can we unfold these ever more keenly into our daily lives? In learning about the expansive place of others, what you will find enclosed is an invitation, a call to contemplation, which gives you permission to pause without needing to break first. If you're ready, let's go. Hello friends and fellow human beings. Today I'm speaking with Cressy Vesseling, one half of Elvis and Cressy, the luxury ethical sustainable brand that started off first by repurposing decommissioned fire hoses and today has expanded into quite an architectural feat all of its own kind in the nature of regenerative farming. Curiosity, pragmatism and an unswerving conviction that our current systems of living could be better are some of the elemental tenets that fuel Cressy. You decide for yourself but the word that emerged for me from this conversation is conviction. There is an energy and deep-seated desire to make a real difference in this world that positively pulsates, even radiates from Cressy. I so hope this conversation resonates with you in just such the way that is meaningful to you. Without further ado, I bring you Cressy Vesseling. Cressy, it's a pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Really looking forward to this. So I know you through your work, as I said previous to us starting this conversation, through the Cartier Women's Initiative Awards, of which you were a fellow. And it's an award scheme which prizes and generates support and funding for incredible ideas led by women in the fields of sustainability. Clearly, these are important pillars for you. And one knows you also as the co-founder of Elvis and Cressy. But I would love to hear in your own words, how is it that you spend your time? Oh, I've never had the question asked that way before. I think, um, to be honest, it's, a, it's fairly straightforward. I, I'm, I have no work-life balance. I am alive and being alive includes working virtually all the time. <laughs> but because I work with my partner and we enjoy the work that we do that seems to be a really fantastic way to have everything set up you know we set up a business together in 2005 which was 17 years ago but we've been together longer than that almost um 20 years now and the business is a values and purpose-driven business it is us being able to wear our hearts on our sleeves so we started by rescuing decommissioned fire hoses without really any plan of what we would do with it. And the more we researched the horses, the more we knew that the next best possible second life for that material would be luxury accessories, which is why we set up a luxury accessories business. And then we donate 50% of the profits to charity. So we do these three things. We rescue materials, we totally transform them. And then we donate 50% of the profits to charity. And it's something that when we started, we thought would be just a, a provocation to the fashion industry really and it has become a much wider provocation let's say it's become our life's work and 
And now we work with 12 different materials and we do all kinds of crazy projects and they're all centered around protecting the environment, um, regenerating the environment and really being unfortunately still radical. You know, when we started, we thought that it, we would do this wonderful thing and lots of people would catch up super quickly. And, and it's, it's almost a disappointment to be still considered a radical 17 years in. <laughs> I thought, I thought we'd be normal now. Well, that's what's interesting, I think, about your journey overall is the fact that there's just so much rationality, I think, built in both of the vision and in the business structure of how you run Elvis and Cressy. And we will get to that. But for me, it really is a business of now and of the future, which makes complete sense. But as you said, it's a slow uptake. And part of that could be the function of this industry within which you find yourself. I have worked in, which is the fashion industry, which is the king and master of branding. But when it comes to the actual work, it is slow and often immaterial in terms of the impact it could truly have. So that's a, a fantastic way to delve into your world. And as you said, you know, working is so happens to exist, but you're alive and being alive is the energy and fuel of your values. And so that's one conduit for you. I'd like to go back a little bit further and just in the formation of your personal story and why this was an important course and business for you to take up and to go back in your upbringing um, growing up in Canada and I saw that you had a formative observation in Hong Kong related to waste could you just take us back to that formative part in your own history of when you acknowledged the issue of waste firsthand well, I, I uh, grew up in Canada I had an amazing childhood just unbelievable really so much joy and so much opportunity and in such a beautiful, safe place with surrounded by all these other families that, that just let us run wild and camping in the Rockies and seeing bear and moose and really being surrounded by big nature. And then you move to Hong Kong where there is actually a lot of green space more than most people think, but, but there's also a lot of you know, it was just that contrast of suddenly being hit with single-use goods and mass consumption. But I, I think even before that, when I was living in Ontario, we, we lived there briefly when I was about 11, 12, 13 years old. And that's when we had the, the acid rain issue. And, and it, it impacted Canadians really heavily because... The, the threat that we were given, certainly in schools, was that if acid rain were to, were to continue, maple trees would not grow to their full height and we would be a syrupless people. <laughs> and I don't know, but most Canadians, if you cut them, they bleed maple syrup. <laughs> okay. So that was the first time I was really hit with an environmental crisis. But the really interesting thing about that one was that there was mass agreement and companies got together and they made a change and it was a solvable problem, like the hole in the ozone layer as well. Right. There were these huge existential threats that required mass collaboration and they got fixed. So when I started reading about climate change really in 1992, uh, this is just before I went to Hong Kong, I again thought this is a solvable problem. You know, it, it's obvious that we need to get off of fossil fuels it's obvious that there are alternative technologies. Let's just fast forward that. And instead, we fast forwarded death, which was just such a, such a, so confusing. 
and and really confusing particularly for a teenager because you're adding that level of confusion on top of your, your your hormones which is why i see a lot of young people now who are protesting and really some people think they're insane ways like putting soup on a painting or gluing themselves to a highway and i don't think any of that's insane because if they are like i was at their age and this is the news that they're watching and it's even worse so much worse than it was when i was 15 16 20 years old then i don't i don't know how i'd react and i i can't say that they're being irrational i just can't i can't i can only sympathize with the fact that they feel so powerless that they that this is their this is that this is their only option so we we've got yeah i i think the formative years for me were just this amazing canadian experience and having a great family and really feeling supported to to do anything that i wanted to do i was never told oh that's a bad idea or maybe you probably can't do that i was always told well let's let's have a think about it let's see if that might work and what do you need and i remember i really wanted to be a politician at one point and my dad somehow through one of his contacts knew knew one of the ex-prime ministers of canada and i had a 15 minute sit down with him and in that 15 minutes he just said look I don't think you want to be in politics. <laughs> he's like, he's like, based on what I've learned from you in this short period of time, it's not going to suit you. It's a, it's long, slow, compromised change. And you are a, a right now kind of person. So maybe it's not a good idea, which was great. And that's probably why I didn't end up in politics as an unhappy, unfulfilled person. And that word you use, compromise, and I think that's something I observe in the nature of your work and how you speak about it, you know, from your interviews to your blog posts, which I feel that you write. I mm. sense, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. That's you. I can, I can tell it's you. Is, the, is that connection between sort of maintaining independence, having integrity, and actually going out into the world and providing solutions that are fully considered and the ability to act quickly, right, when it's needed, but also mm. having a longer time horizon. So I think that idea of not having to compromise because for you, it's clear what needs to be done. The journey is freewheeling and unpredictable, but the fact that you don't want to have to compromise on your values, I think is central to what you're building. And so I can see why the life of a politician would not be suited to you and not to say that all are compromised, but when you have a populace of thousands and millions and individuals who have other incentives a lone voice will always be drowned out unfortunately mm. i think um, but it's also the nature yeah. of democracy and democracy yeah. is wonderful you know you do it's a broad church and if you want to actually be a good politician then you have to serve everyone not just the people who agree with you and that is a tricky very very tricky thing to do and we can see in in what's being played out in a lot of democracies that they're struggling and they're struggling because they're finding like the, the easiest way to get elected is just to create these bi very binary choices. You're either with me or against me. And that's a hideous thing to do because populations that actually largely agree and largely want the same things. I mean, everybody just wants health, safe, health, safety, security for their family, opportunity for their children. And yet we're being polarized by cherry picking issues designed to divide us. And, and I think that 
that's why politics doesn't is really really important but people with appropriate skills need to be in politics so people who are unbelievable at coalition building people who are incredibly empathetic and understand people who disagree with them as much as they understand people who agree with them people who seek out discord in order to make make compromises and help people collaborate that's the skill set of a good politician and unfortunately that's just not the skills that I have. Well clearly you have other skills because you chose the enterprise route and was there something that was part of your nature already as you said the desire to just to go forward to leap in or did you have examples outside of you in terms of owning a business running a startup you know where did that idea come from? I'm definitely a leap in person um, not a kind of a bystander I remember uh, meeting a young woman a few years ago who who said look like I'd love to you know just ch have a chat with you and maybe do some mentoring sessions and I really want to know what was your career path and what was your career plan and Elvis overheard that and he just burst out laughing going she she had no plan she has no plan she will never plan um so I think it's yes I'm a leap in person I'm, I'm an attack the problem person. I'm a, once I get into a problem, I want to know absolutely everything about it. I'm insanely curious. I want to know why things happen the way they do. I want to know who's involved. I want to know what are the parameters? What are, you know, what are the heating points? What are the melting points? How can, what are the costs? Where is everything? And so few people understand these things about society. You know, where does our sewage go? Who treats it? What ends up, where, what ends up happening with it? How does our power actually get generated? Where does it come from? Which channels does it flow through before it comes into your home? If we all had a better understanding of our infrastructure, it would be easier for us to make these things more efficient and, and more functional, but they're away and they're hidden. So I'm very curious about those things. I don't like walking down high streets. I like walking down back alleys and looking in the skips. I like sewage treatment systems. I like um, power stations. I, I, I like, it, you know, big, bold infrastructure, if it, if it's designed in the service of nature and, and humanity. So I, I'm just a curious person. And then when you, when you couple that with enterprise, so for me, my first job out of university, I got incredibly lucky. I, I got a job with this small venture capital company in Hong Kong. And although values were not anywhere near aligned, I learned an incredible amount from the investors there about the kinds of businesses they invest in, what they look for in teams, what they look for in technology. I got to see a lot of businesses that succeeded, but I also got to see a lot of businesses that failed. And the most powerful lesson I took from that was that if you make any money at all, you can do whatever you want. And there's a, that, that's great if, if it's, if it's somebody who's motivated for good, right? but it's, terrible if it's somebody who's motivated for bad right so so yeah if you make any money selling drugs to children unfortunately to some more drugs to children if you whereas that's where i think we need tighter laws and regulations so everybody talks about the free market and i benefit from the free market because i'm allowed to foist these crazy ideas on society and because we make enough money to stay open, we can keep doing those wonderful things. We can rescue fire hose. We can 
start apprenticeships. We can build a passive workshop out of straw bales. We can set ourselves up as farmers. We can donate 50% of our profits to charity. And nobody can say mm, no, because they're not shareholders. <laughs> so they have no power. But then the market isn't actually free. And that's why you have a fashion system that for me represents nothing other than a structural failure. Yeah, I don't care that it makes money and employs people. It degrades the environment and it exploits people largely. Those are the two most significant outcomes of not the fashion system that was, the fashion system that still is now. And the same goes for the food system. You know, I'm running a regenerative organic farm, um, but if you think about that in the percentage of overall farms, I mean, that's a fraction of 1%, which means that our food is largely being produced by farms that are contributing to climate change and to you know, destruction of local watersheds and to, you know, overall erosion of the topsoil, which means we only have, according to some people, 30, between 30 and 60 harvests left. So we, we, we I like the opportunity of failed systems. That's where I'm a classic entrepreneur because I see opportunity in crisis and failure, things like that. But then I'm equally annoyed because the only reason we have these failures is because we've failed entirely to understand that the market isn't free and that someone pays, someone always pays. And just because that person is somewhere else and you don't know them personally, and just because that ecosystem is somewhere else and, it, and you don't see it every day, doesn't mean that that cost isn't being incurred. So for me, it's just, I have the joy of running a business that pays for all of its externalities. And that's why I can demand that other businesses step up to the plate. So I'm not the classic campaigner where I can just be like, you do better, you do better. I'm like, yeah, I'm only gonna demand of you what I expect from myself. And that's a really, um, well, I found sitting on that particular high horse is quite a powerful <laughs> position to be in. That's Especially right. when you're talking to companies with much yeah. bigger budgets and much more means. And you're saying, look, there was just two of us. We had no experience in this. We did it anyway. You have absolutely no excuse for your mediocrity. That's right. And that the, the idea of mediocrity and settling always for the median or the mean for the average. But if we were seeking a beyond and above average existence in the future, if we could aim for the highest good, mm. then surely the framework of thinking should be geared towards that. And also in a multi-generational perspective, I note often that you will think of the work you are doing that you know, the circle of the business versus mm. that linear line, which goes towards entropy and things becoming disordered and wasteful, is the idea of the future of, you know, the, the children of the children of the children, you know, several generations that need to be considered when any choice is made. And as you said, because we have disconnected ourselves from the fundamental process of making, of generating material goods or energy, we are so we're living in the now with material consumption, which is deleterious to the future. And I yeah. think what you've done with the business is you extend your timeline. So you're a custodian of a much longer period of time. And, and this, we even have yeah. that in, um, we have that codified in our decision-making. So what we, 
look at when we're making even even quite small business decisions. So we look at, you know, is this going to wash the space? Is this going to work? Can we afford it? Are we the right team to do it? Those kinds of classic things. But the last question we ask ourselves is, is this going to make the world better for other people's grandchildren? Because everybody thinks sustainability is, is a complicated equation, and I, I, I just disagree. If you ask that one question, then you've got sustainability and longevity built in. Because to be unsustainable is to be impossible to maintain in the long term or to be indefensible, which is a great word, right? Like I would say most of the modern market economy is indefensible. There isn't, if, you ha if you're in a group of people, all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds who, who normally disagree on politics, no one will stand up and say, I think it's totally acceptable for us to exploit people in order for us to have cheap clothing. Nobody will say that. But that's the system that is currently delivering the vast majority of our clothing. And we've, we, we, although it's completely misaligned to all human values, not lefty values, but all human values, it's, uh, it's, it's just permitted because it's already there, because it already exists. Now, I, I can sort of understand why it existed historically when the hinterland was the hinterland, when away was away, you know, in the time before the internet. I can sort of understand how some people exploited this, this, this whole thing for personal gain, because yes, there are selfish people in the world and they're all psychopaths. Like we, there are, there are some, but the vast majority of us are not psychopaths. And now we know about this psychopathy. So I, I'm confused about the pace of change there. But it's, it's, it is important, this lens of other people's grandchildren, because that takes selfishness out of the equation and it takes short-term thinking out of the equation. And all of a sudden I don't have children anyway. We don't, we don't have skin in this game. We're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this because the only way I can wake up in the morning and look myself in the mirror is by doing this. It's pretty black and white to me. People with all the education and all the opportunities, if they're not working for the good of humankind, I don't, I don't know how they sleep. And that's, I think, one of the central tenets of what's perhaps caused our issue is the fact that storytelling is so powerful. We know this. We can go back tens of hundreds of thousands of years from cave paintings to the oral tradition of this myth-making, the mythos, the story, the human story of what it is to be and to progress and to share this wisdom but we've made it so personal at the same time the fact that you have to move people at a very personal level before they'll make a change you know this idea yeah. of even charitable donation and and the giving of you know whatever funds you may have you have to highlight a specific case or it has to be a specific cause that has touched you personally in some way and if we are waiting for those moments then at the end of the day, we're, we're waiting for emotion to drive us purely. Yeah. And emotion comes and goes. And as you said, instead of having this clear-sighted view of this one home planet, which we're all contributing to, both in harming it, but having great insight and personal skills and action to make a change is something I think your business is, you know, is ushering in. It's a new kind of business. You know, I know you're part of the B Corp and you have other certifications. But one of the things that appeals to me about you 
and what you know yourself and Elvis are doing is that you're creating a bigger platform. You've talked about this, you know, workshop you've opened. You have a farm that you bought. You're working in regenerative farming. It's much more than a luxury bag or a luxury belt. Mm. You're creating an open source technology of information, and I'd love to hear from you. And clearly, as you said, you go where the ideas lead you. You have a solution, yes, but you go where the idea will take you. How how can we encourage this idea of shared information, shared knowledge? You know, what could we do as individuals or as companies to have that viewpoint of a timeline and open sourcing information? Maybe everyone needs to go back to kindergarten. Maybe our education has slightly failed us because when you're in kindergarten, yes, there's a lot of play and it's really fun, but you're primarily learning how to collaborate and how to share, which is a focus because that's the only way for human beings to really be successful in life. If you don't know how to collaborate and how to share then you're going to struggle to have meaningful relationships and, and friendships. So yes, you might be successful in the 1980s um, concept, but it's not the 1980s anymore. So you might not be mentally resilient and you might not be content. And all our post-secondary education to me seems to teach us to specialize and work out how you can earn more money. And as far as I can tell from everyone that I know, money isn't the determining factor for happiness at all. I mean, yes, absolutely not feeling like you're going to have to leave your house every five minutes and, and, and not feeling like you won't be able to pay the bills. Those are definitely contributors to being unhappy for sure. And that's why, you know, I guess I'm a classic Canadian socialist. I don't think we should, I don't think we should, we should leave people to the, to, to their, to their death. Basically. I don't like that American Americanization of society where it's just like, you know, succeed or fail, like you're in or you're out. And to a certain extent that's happening in Hong Kong too. I mean, you've got vast stores of wealth. You've got a incredibly um, successful city state, but there's also people living in cages because they can't afford to live anywhere else. And, and that's just, that's a sign of it. Of, of an uncivilized society. And in the UK, we've got children who are going to school without food and then not being fed at school because their parents earn more than 7,000 and whatever pounds a year the limit is. And that's not a sign of a civilized society. That's a sign of some pretty, um, I, I, just of despair. It's a sign of breakdown. So, yeah, I, I don't know how to not be a moral person in everything that I do in life. And I want education to focus on that because I don't, I, I do want everybody to be content and happy. I went to an environmental event last week, a crazy event about how we could redesign society called Anthropy at the Eden Project in Cornwall. And there was all kinds of people there talking about solutions in food, farming, fashion, politics. And it was really exciting and stimulating, but I was in one session with a lot of sustainability professionals who were just broken. You know, they've been fighting this fight for 20 years and nobody's listened to them. And even now when it's like, you know, with what Guterres is saying about us being on the highway to hell and last year, red line for humanity, people still aren't listening. 
the, the, the work that they're doing is like, oh yeah, this is a great report you've written to us. We're not going to implement any of it, but great report. Thank you very much. We'll pay you whatever you want to be paid for it. And so they're, they're low. So these people with all the education that we need to make the changes are at a particular sort of low ebb and, and, and we need them to be thriving. We need them to be ready for the fight. And we need to completely and totally change, or in my view, definitions of success in order to do that. Because right now, the vast majority of people, if you went and did a straw poll across, I don't know, I would love to see Ipsos do a poll on this. Like, what is success? People would say money. It would be some sort of financial metric. There would be very few people would say uh, someone who's been able to maximize their skills for good and have really wonderful, stable relationships within their family and their community and who's fit and healthy. And, and, and yet that's where all of my strength comes from. <laughs> from those things. I think the power of wording is, I mean, words have been sort of my, my first love. You know, I studied literature. I, I read heavily and deeply and broadly, and I write as well, because that's how I make sense of my internal chatter before I feel like I could present it to the external world. I have a responsibility to my own coherence before I go out and connect with other people because then we impact and infect depending on how you go about your day-to-day -day life and the words as well as your actions and I've noted with you Cressy and how you speak and you know even using using the word luxury you know for me is a mixed term to use you know mm. luxury obviously is personal luxury has been commended and associated again with just value and wealth and status and there's other, you know, plays on words you have in terms of if you call yourself a creative, but are you truly a creative if you aren't thinking of the full life cycle of your creative decisions? So you're not a creator, you are a destroyer. And the final piece, which I loved, you're, you know, you're self-describing as perhaps, yes, a co-founder or a CEO, but more and more a chief fantasist, mm. you know, and the power of words to make change before they were used by the ad men to create a narrative of almost hypnosis, right? Of mm. keeping people within a certain guideline of ways of being and buying. But I think one of the you know, antidotes is the power of words to help reframe, give people their vocabulary to use. And I'm sure, Chris, you must have seen over the years you've been working, certain terms are becoming more accepted. Certain, even the B Corp, for example, is becoming more mainstream. So one would hope, and perhaps it's the optimist in me, is that perhaps the language is the unlock to give people their vocabulary to feel empowered to use the right words to short circuit other types of thinking. Um, and, I, and I think that has to count for something, right? Actions are one thing, but the, the language we use is really important as well. I can't even stress how important language is. When, when we first started the business, because I was not from the luxury world, I was just using what I thought to be the most straightforward description of what we did. So I said, we reclaimed this and, but reclaim didn't mean anything to anyone. And when I changed that to rescue, probably about 2009, 2010, some, some people were like, oh, I totally get that. And that's an emotional word. And now we see that word rescue everywhere, which is so good because it's, it's, it's such a, a an, an important unlock. So that kind of language works really well. And 
the quality of our storytelling has definitely improved because at, at first I thought it just, I'm just going to tell the truth, be totally straight, but you have to choose words that, that really get under people's skin and really get into their mind and really stick in their heart. And that's, that's what makes you sort of memorable and unique. So it does have to be elevated. Now there's the flip side of that, right? Because there's a lot of people who are fantastic storytellers and also psychopaths. And there's a lot of people who are fantastic storytellers, but they're telling a small part of a, a small, good green part of a story that's actually bad. So some of the best greenwashers are fantastic <laughs> storytellers. So I think you need two things at the same time. You need to be absolutely laser focused, North star, um, aligned with the truth and then you need to and your language then comes comes from that and and it can and it can and should be as beautiful and wonderful and powerful as you like but uh the truth has to sit at the core of it because we are in this fake news we are in this yeah we're in a time when people can very easily be corrupted by trolls and internet rabbit holes and, and, you know, greedy liars. I mean, I, I, I look at what happened in America though, like Trump is just essentially a, a greedy child who will say anything to get what he wants. And it's not like in the UK, we don't have these kinds of politicians. We do, we have them here and we have these kinds of people in the media. We, ha we do have we do have voices that have gotten an enormous amount of playtime because their their story plays very well. I mean, Nigel Farage was a storyteller, but he was largely telling a lie. He was the first. We talk about Suella Braverman talking about um, invasion, but she, that language didn't come from her. He was talking about invaders, and I, 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 I'm an invader. I'm an immigrant. Well, my parents too. I'm first generation, you know, born and raised. I, I came on, just because I came on a plane rather than a boat, I'm somehow an acceptable migrant. It's, 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 a, it's a toxic debate that actually involves very few people, and yet it is being used to, to divide and polarize society. And I find it, you know, deeply disturbing. But those, that... That, those narratives are also powerful. So yes, literature is amazing, but well, you know, there's been books in the past that have been pretty dangerous books, pretty powerful stories, but pretty dangerous. And I, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I don't believe in censorship, but I just really deeply want to win the argument. I want to, I want to tell the best story, but I want to have the best data as well. Exactly. And I think the, this commitment to transparency that you have and you know, the, the workshop that you've worked incredibly hard to build, the farm that you have in Kent, and the fact that it's an open door policy that people can come and see how you construct the works. You know, Elvis and the design side, the construction side, the R&D, the fact that you said it's a regenerative farm as well, is that, you know, you live your values. I think there's no higher good for me that is success embodied, is that every breath you give is a generative exercise in the health and humanity of the planet i think it's a beautiful thing to do but it's not the easiest thing at the beginning you know you can talk to this i'm sure is that as you said you would speak to people who literally didn't 
they could hear the words, but there was incomprehension. Mm. But over time, the landscape does broaden. And for me, that does give hope. And we are capable of almost sort of leaps of progress, even if we do feel like we're treading water at time. And I feel the nature of your business and other peer businesses, as you said, if you go to these summits, is that enterprise is one part of this solution, but it has to be underpinned by values and integrity. And I think you've done that very well with Elvis and Cressy. And the final piece, you know, before we get to the nature of the slower side of things beyond the work, I've heard you say now in other conversations, the fact that you are a leap-in sort of person and the fact that your soul will sing for certain thing, and that's perhaps compost tea, for example, or reforged aluminium. Can you talk to the power of simply having that bodily response, that gut feeling, in actually folding it into a business and folding it into affirmative, proactive action beyond the mind? Yeah, I think that's actually a really easy answer because running a business is difficult. It, it isn't all sunshine and fire hoses, right? You have some really difficult choices and some days are really hard. But if you know at the core of it that it's doing this, that it's this, this, this idea that you had, then maybe it's the stubborn nature of you. But it just means that you're propelled through all the bad times. So we started because I fell in love with Firehose and I was like, this can't go to landfill. And every day we're running the business, some, some, someone will buy a belt. Something will happen like that. We will clean another uh, seven hoses. We'll be doing something here that takes you right back to that moment when we first found the hose and fell in love with it. It's, we have a direct and physical daily connection with the problem we set out to solve in 2005. So we're constantly reminded that, yeah, we did this, we're doing this, we have to keep doing this. And so I think if we, if I had just felt like meh about the fire hose in the first place, I wouldn't have been able to commit 17 years of my life to it. So you, so the, that, that visceral connection is important. It's the same with, you know, with, with Elvis, when I first met him, I, I remember, you know, I, people talk about love at first sight. Well, it wasn't like that, but my life changed in the moment that I met him because I remember thinking that everything else that was happening at the time was somehow insignificant and that I had to find out more about this person and I had to get to know them because, because it, somehow it was going to impact what happened to me in the rest of my life and my decision-making. So I instantly saw that things had completely changed. And that was really before we had had more than 10 sentences between us. Wow. And we had a, we only had one date and I moved in with him and I never, I, I, I never left. It was a kind of <laughs> like a running joke. I had this, I had this apartment in Hong Kong for several months and one of my friends moved into the apartment because I was never there. And I, yes, it was a, a very quick and snap decision that I made, but also the best decision that I made. So, so yes, chief fantasist, that was the, that was the name that um, Steve Evans at Cambridge University gave me. And 
Elvis hates it because it's <laughs> like she's she's hard enough to rein in anyway. Now she has a title, um, and now she's got like permission from Cambridge University to be even more crazy. But it, but it is it does suit me because I uh, yeah I, I leap into things and I'm a dreamer and and all of his yeah and everything else and that's why also Elvis is the best partner for me because he's because he is the actualizer of dreams so he is uh, absolutely unbelievably phenomenal at turning a dream into something that happens just happens and is happening uh, and i i just can't think of a, of a better mix of skills i think i get the, i get i think i get the better half of it though <coughs> so the nature of the work as you said it's an ongoing daily minute to minute existence for you but clearly rest is important in some form right the idea the ability to regenerate to have clear thinking how has your approach to rest and respite generally evolved over time would you say well i think you can rest in different ways so i used to run a lot and i know that doesn't sound restful at all but I'm not very fast and I would just after about six or seven miles I would just sort of get into this zen state where I couldn't really feel anything physically but I could connect to things intellectually in a, in a great way so I guess it was sort of long form meditation and I still do that I don't run the big runs anymore because I'm 45 years old and biomechanically still fine and I just don't want to get into the whole knee replacements thing but we have a dog and we, every morning we walk Monty um, through the farm and every evening we walk Monty again. And sometimes we go for little runs with him and big longer walks on the weekend. And it's those times when we are at our most clear and when we make our best decisions. Friday nights, Friday now, um, we make pizza and we have a bottle of red wine together. And I find that incredibly restful and very ritualistic it's like our it's our alternative to church bread bread and wine are still involved um but we and we spend a lot of time together like we, we you know we do yoga together we, do, we exercise together we obviously sleep in the same in the same room and we do sleep but we just don't do distracting things like i'm um i'm wearing a jumper that my friend gave me i'm wearing trousers so i have this alert on ebay when trousers in my size of this brand that fits me comes up and at a certain like below i don't know 20 pounds or whatever then i bid on them but it's all automatic and that's kind of how i shop so i'm not actively consuming anything um and we just have very we actually have a very simple life but also the reason for coming to the farm was so that we could live this simple life and yet be really crazily happy. So we, we put in all of this infrastructure for the wetland waste treatment system, but also rainwater harvesting ponds. One of those rainwater ponds we, we swim in. And, you know, I haven't, have I been for a swim in November? I'm not sure I have, but I was regularly swimming all through October. And it's just, that's very calming. Cold water is, is really, really, fantastic at clarifying your mind particularly if you're doing it um for sort of longer than at least a minute i think i could try and stay <laughs> for at least a minute 
but that's here. That's a resource that we decided to invest in here because, you know, we knew that we, we needed, you know, rest, relaxation, respite, that kind of thing. But I guess we've set up quite a cozy life for ourselves and, and it's very simple and we don't have to commute. You know, our, we live on the farm and we work on the farm. So it's not more than a hundred steps to get from door to door. But, but yes, we do rest. It's just that we fit it in, we fit it in around, around the work that we do. And the biggest, the biggest reason we get to do any of it is because we're doing it together. You know, a lot of people have to fight for that quality time with their family. And we're having that quality time all the time. And I, I just, I remember so many times I've had people go, oh my God, I can't believe you work with your partner. And oh my God, this must be terrible. And I'm like, I don't know how you work with other people. If you, like for me, you know, if you find someone that you really love, I don't think you want to spend time with other people. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I have, we have friends and we love our friends, but the person I want to spend all my time with is Elvis. And if, imagine if I'd done another startup with another person and I had to spend all my time with with them I would I would be uh, I would be I would not put the time into the startup that it needed because I'd want to be with Elvis and I would not like my founder partners because they would never be as good as him so yes yeah so the nature of the spaces and places that mean you know rest respite contemplation are actually in union with someone who mm. shares your values, clearly the base of love as well. And it's a shared experience, but I think is actually quite special because sometimes we can think of isolation or separation when it comes to changed states of mind. But the fact that you seek energy and rest from the same person is quite special, I think. And as you said, why would you go elsewhere when you find it in the company of that other person, mm. regardless of the activity as well, it sounds from pizza to yoga I think that's a good range to enjoy <laughs> yeah. yeah and then the word contemplation um it contains baggage perhaps it contains other tradition if I say the word to you contemplation what does that conjure up to you I, I actually think it, it really brings back my teenage years because I never had more time to think than then that's a real that's a real sort of privilege that suddenly when you get into the rest of life you 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 can really if you look back you can see it as a loss but also when you're a teenager you take all of your thoughts so seriously like i wrote everything down i had a dictaphone and i was putting everything into it because i was like this needs to be saved for prosperity it's all much great but i felt everything so deeply at the time and it's not like i don't feel those feel deeply now but i was almost overwhelmed by it at, at, at that stage and that's maybe when i got into i think when i really started to ch channel it into something good was when i started running which was at university and that was just then the time that i had to think about things and i i still that's that's still when i think about things when i'm out you know in fresh air breathing and exercising also sometimes i'll wake up at 1 30 in the morning or three o'clock in the morning and i know i've woken up because i've got something on my mind and I, I used to just stay in bed and try and like talk myself back to sleep and get into the dead man's yoga pose and, and just like tilt my head but now I get up and deal with it and then dress it because I realize that, that, uh, that you can't 
solve those problems while you're also trying to sleep. Mm -hmm. That's just incompatible. So for me, contemplation just means, I guess it's an extension of curiosity. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? That, what can we do about it? Why, the why, 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 which is something I've had since I was a kid. And I'll never, I'll never not be that person. Even to the extent, like you think about what's happening in, U in Ukraine. Um, when it first happened, Elvis and I thought, what can we do about that? Literally, we spent two days going, is there anything that we can fold into what we're doing so that it, you know, is aligned with what we're doing so that we can keep pushing everything forward all at once. And it's, yeah, I mean, sometimes that's the problem is that we, we want to do everything all at once and we can't, we literally can't. So you, you do have to pick and choose. That's probably the hardest thing is that you have to decide what you're good at and what is aligned and what, where your skills, because it's not just what you fall in love with as a waste material. It's also what's, what, what are the skills that you have to take that and turn that into something truly, truly interesting. And that's the hardest thing of, of all with the, and, but also why the contemplation is necessary. Because right. that's when you decide how to prioritize. Exactly. You have a clearer sort of internal compass when you can just be still in some way in thought. And it can be an action, it can be in movement, but we're talking about an inner stillness and however you come to that. And then the path does tend to reveal itself. Mm -hmm. um, I've just got two final questions just before we wrap. So clearly you had this upbringing which you said was idyllic in many ways the freedom to roam both physically in nature but also within the mind with the pursuits of thought and liberation and an internal drive that you had of the why and then later in life with the why question mark you came up with some solutions which you're enacting now through your daily habit of living and working have there actually been any external influences that you could point to in terms of writers or family members or other thinkers that have influenced this way of being which is i think a really broad contemplation on how to live well and you so happen to express it through elvis and cressy and your other work but any external influences upon you uh, sure loads like my my grandmother my 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 maternal grandmother was just this powerhouse matriarch woman who I mean, it took her 17 years to get a university degree because she's doing it course by course at night, like by correspondence. And she was just a determined person and didn't waste anybody's time, didn't waste anybody's talent, didn't waste anything. And she gave everything. And she was, she was so overcommitted within her community, um, but never felt like she was doing enough. And she just, had the best bedtime stories so she'd be like right i'm going to tell you how to store a cabbage through winter <laughs> like there's there's no fairy tales <laughs> it was all very practical um so she was incredible and then you know i have i have really amazing siblings that it's just so different for me but just we've just such a support network for each other but I also had like Rachel Carson, when I read Silent Spring, that just blew the lid off everything for me. And I read that at probably the right age. Uh, I was like 14, 15, I think. And it just, I was just like, well, what the hell? I mean, 
because she just was tip that right silent spring was tip of the iceberg she was just focused on ddt and things like that and i'm like what else are we putting into the landscape and then you start getting into other books like maybe mid-course correction um which was about um the C, this transformational CEO who took on interface carpet and took a linear business model and made it circular. And he made it, he, he did that all while growing the business and making it more interesting and more profitable. And, and, and it was just a, he was, a, he was, he did it all very sort of technically and thoughtfully. And he didn't ever look like a hippie to anyone. He looked like a solid CEO, solid investable CEO. And I just was like, oh, that's really interesting. He's like infiltrated <laughs> the business world. So that was a fascinating one. And then oh, in, since I've been in the UK, I've had an unbelievable opportunity to even get to know some real heroes. Like I was a, made a social enterprise ambassador when we first started Elvis and Cressy. That was a cabinet office position from about 2007 to 2010. And some of the other ambassadors were... Tim Smith, the founder of the Eden Project, and um, Nigel Kershaw, who's one of the co-founders of The Big Issue, who I just had dinner with the other night, you know, um, Sophie Trangeville, who was running Divine Chocolate, and Sam Conniff, who's set up Livity, and these incredible social entrepreneurs who all had a problem that they were in love with. They were all tackling it, and they were doing it in really unbelievable and amazing ways. And we're all unbelievably different, different ages, different backgrounds, different skill sets, but same amount of energy and the same amount of love for humanity and just buckets of empathy. So I've got this group of like, you know, almost heroes that I, that, that I get to be friends with. It's this sort of the miracle of, of being here. Um, and that, yeah, I'm in an amazing community of social enterprises and B Corps and and now that we have the farm, I want to, that's one of the things that I want to do. I want to be able to sort of give back, you know, we want this to be a hub for learning. We want to see how many things can we do in this space? How many groups can we bring to the space? And what can we teach here? What, pe what can people learn from this? What can people take away quickly? And how can they, you know, use this to, to, to make rapid change? So, yeah, I, I, I have no shortage of inspiration. I mean, uh, donut economics, Kate Robert. She tweeted about us. She's like, Soma Firehose Belt was the ultimate donut accessory. I was like, oh, this is the best moment of my life. You know, some people yeah. are like all about the Kardashians. And I'm like, this economist <laughs> loves our belts. Yeah, I would love to speak with her. I have been exploring her work as well. So that's right. And that's the, you know, it goes back to the beginning. We were talking about reframing success. And that's the case in point, because you have these internal markers of what it is to actually progress, to actually make a difference mm. in, the, in the world and in the time in which we are born as well, which brings great gifts as well as challenges, things that are approachable and doable now that weren't even a decade ago, two decades ago, let alone prior to that. So ever more the problems are there, but ever more are the solutions, I think. And I, you know, I have a sense of perhaps what your response can be to this last question, but this coinage I have of the age of the steward. We've talked about you, you know, being a custodian of the land, you know, mm. through your work, the regeneration, being a hub and a place for others to come. But in your own view, what would you say you would like to be known for, even just within yourself or within your partnership? As What would you like to say you stewarded in? What would you be a steward of or for? Well, this is the beauty of the circular economy. Someone was saying, like, 
what would it mean to you if we just had a circular economy tomorrow? And I just said, oh my God, that'd be just, I wouldn't have any stress anymore. Because I, I would know that while water was with me, I was the custodian of that water. And then it could go back into the water cycle and, and be returned to someone else, somewhere else. And that while I was pouring myself a glass of wine, that that that, that wastewater from that was going to go into my wetland system and the bottle would, would go and be cleaned and refilled and someone else would be the custodian and it could be around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I just wouldn't have any of these anxieties about materials and about consumption because there wouldn't be consumers. There would just be custodians. And that's how we see our, our belts, you know, if someone grows a little bit, we'll grow the belt for them. If someone shrinks a little bit, we shrink the belt for them. We don't want them to buy another belt. We want them to have the same belt. We just want it to fit them better. If we can be a small part in ushering in the age of the custodian, that would be a huge victory for us. I think that's just wonderfully articulate. No consumers, just custodians. I think that's excellent. I think you should use that broadly. I'm, I'm going to go write a blog post on it right now. <laughs> I think it's the right thing to do. And again, we finish with words. Words are all we have, for, you know, at this point to express, communicate, enliven and engender a new future. Cressy, it's been a wonderful pleasure speaking with you. I had high hopes and they were met and beyond. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. No, thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. hope you truly enjoyed my conversation today i'd love to hear from you please do leave a comment spotify wherever you are listening and tell me what is a space or place that gives you that moment of pause and you never know i may just share it here so keep listening out finally if this episode resonated and you think it might do the same for someone you cherish then do leave a very nice comment and a five star rating that way the universe will know i'm not a solo architect but part of a much larger, wonderful team of builders. And until next time, I wish you much peace.